Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you doing today? Uh, today's episode of our podcast, this is Matt Chancy with the Tax Alpha Podcast. And on today's podcast, we are interviewing uh, Maria Del Pilar, and she just goes by Pilar. And she is an attorney with the um, Rubio International Law Firm specializing in international tax uh, concerns for people that um, have a connection, obviously, to the United States, but internationally as well. Um, hi, Pilar. How are you doing? Hi, man. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. So so tell me a little bit, I guess, about, um, you know, let's just start with Obviously, you have some international ties. So let's talk about that. Like what made you get into international tax law? Because I can't assume that that would be something that's like is everybody's first like top of my, hey, you know what, I'm going to do international tax law. How did you pick that as a topic? Okay, so I was born and raised in Colombia. Uh, I moved to the U.S. about 22 years ago. And I was going to law school and I knew I wanted to do some transactional work. I didn't really know what kind of, you know, law I wanted to practice, but I knew I didn't want to do like criminal litigation or I was, I was more inclined towards like real estate, estate planning. And then during law school, I had a conversation with a banker one time, you know, I was asking for advice and I said, look, what do you think? Do you think I should do the estate planning, you know, LLM, like, how do I, you know, where do I go from here? And he said, look, if you really want to like, you know, do something that not everybody's doing out there and just do a master's in taxes. And I was like, okay, I'm pretty good at math. You know, most people that go to law school are not. So there I had an advantage and I was like, okay, I can do that. So I enrolled into the master's LLM program at UM. And when I was, you know, going there, taking my classes, I noticed that within tax, there's these, you know, sub specialization of international tax. And it was a very interesting topic. And I felt that I had the advantage of being able to connect with people from Latin America, especially because clearly like Spanish is my first language. So I was able to, you know, communicate with them. I also went to law school in Colombia for two years. So, you know, I had a basic knowledge of the legal framework and the legalese. And, you know, I said, I think this is a good way for me to connect with, you know, the Latin community and also to be able to help them. Right. Because I feel that a lot of uh, foreigners, when they come to the U.S., even if they've been, you know, educated in Europe or, you know, the U.S., when they sit down to talk about their finances and their wealth. They really want to be able to talk in their own language and be explained everything, you know, to the minimum detail. So that's how I landed in, in international tax. 
<laughs> understand and agree with that statement very much. Actually, I've visited uh, Central South America a great deal. Love Colombia. Um, was in Medellin a couple years ago for Festival of Flowers. I guess it was actually more than a couple years ago. It was right before COVID. So that was that was probably about four years ago now. But that was a great time. And How was it? It was. Do you it love was, it. It was amazing, right? It was a great time. So I went with like four friends. And what we realized is, is look, I'm kind of a tallish, um, bigger, very white guy, right? And so I'm going to these things, I'm walking around and you can see like these older ladies and these little kids like looking at me. And they're like, <laughs> you can tell. And at first it didn't dawn on me. And then I kind of started catching on to it. And I was like, oh my God, they probably, some of these people probably never seen a big white guy like me before. Maybe I, <laughs> I don't know. Right. So when I realized they were looking at me like that, you know, I would walk over and I would say, and I would look at them and I would go, Mida Ambrasu. <laughs> and and everybody would just start laughing and just think that it was totally hysterical and totally funny. But anyway, it was a great time. It was totally a great time. I'm happy to hear that. But here's what's funny that you brought up. I've actually lived in Brazil before. And the reason that I, so my Portuguese is probably better than my Spanish, which it's still, neither one of them are very good, to be honest with you. But <laughs> One of the reasons I left Brazil was because somebody brought to my attention that if I were driving a car and got pulled over by the government, that my Portuguese was, albeit very good conversationally, was not good enough to explain why I didn't have papers and all the other stuff for driving uh, the car of a Brazilian citizen, right? And that was kind of scary. It was the first time I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I would not be able to do a legal proceeding in Portuguese. Right. So you brought that up that, yes, when a, when a foreigner comes here, doesn't matter how good their English may or may not be. When they're talking about their legal and their finances, they want to talk about it in their native language. I agree with that. Totally. Yes. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So I've experienced that in my life. So I 100% agree with that. So you were an attorney that was good in math. You decided that taxes made a little sense because you were originally from Colombia. International tax law tend to make sense. And so now you've been doing this for a few years. I guess the next logical question would be, how do your customers find you or how do you find them, the people that, because I'm you're in South Florida, you're in the Miami area. I am. Yes, I'm in Coral Gables. How do your the people that you that you do business with, how do they know how to find you that you are there for them to bridge that gap? So to be honest with you, it's been quite surprising because I, you know, up to this point, I haven't done much marketing, if you know, if any. Uh, and it's all by referrals. So it's and that goes to my point that I made at the beginning, where I do think that people, regardless of how wealthy they are or you know, how good their English is. They want to sit down with somebody that not only speaks their language, but also understands the culture and how things are done in Latin America, which is quite different from the U.S. So all of my clients are referrals from, you know, previous or current clients, or maybe they're referred by professionals in Colombia or Peru or Mexico, because, uh, you know, I don't only work with Colombians. Majority of my clients are Colombians, just again, because I think, you know, they find that in common. But, you know, most of them are referred by other professionals or, or clients. Understood. Referrals. What I've always been told is referrals are the best business, right? 
They are. They are. <laughs> so what are some of the primary concerns for, for those of us that don't understand anything about tax law, right, especially international tax law? What are some of the primary concerns that if someone were to hire an international tax lawyer, what type of problems are those people trying to solve? Um, okay, so one of our major areas of practice is pre-immigration tax planning. And that's basically foreigners moving to the U.S. who, you know, have substantial wealth or assets or, you know, they have different sources of income abroad and they want to move to the U.S. and they want to know how to plan, you know, to either transfer those assets to younger generations or like how to handle those assets. Because once the person not only moves to the U.S., right, but becomes a tax resident in the U.S., then that person is going to be subject to U.S. income taxes on their worldwide income. And they also have reporting obligations on their worldwide assets. And I found many times that people just move to the U.S., you know, they're excited to come here, they apply for their green card, and they receive the green card, they, they're here with their family, they enroll the kids, you know, at school, and then six months later, go to the tax attorney and they're like, oh, by the way, you know, I've, I've been here for six months and I have, you know, these companies or these properties or, you know, all of these assets abroad. What do I do? And then it's too late for them to plan ahead, right? To plan because they already became tax residents of the U.S. That's something they have to do in advance to minimize the tax impact they're going to suffer when they come to the U.S. It's not... You know, it's not about tax evasion or anything like that. It's just planning how to optimize your tax structure and how do you reduce the reporting requirements too? Because these foreign structures are subject to, you know, huge amounts of uh, reporting obligations. Sure, sure. Understood. Yeah. And you brought up tax evasion. And, you know, I get asked questions like that all the time. Look, this stuff is legal. It's in the code. And, and I just tell people all the time, if your stuff is structured like this, titled like this, owned like this, reported like this, and the code says that you can structure it like this, and if you do so, you'll pay less in taxes, then all you have to ask yourself is, do I feel comfortable moving it from like this to like this? What do I have to learn? What do I have to understand? And what are the trade-offs to do that, right? So it's it's just learning how to play the game by those by the new set of rules that they now have to deal with, right? Yeah. And also, you know, even if, which, you know, at the end is the goal usually to lower the tax impact. But even if that's not the case, you know, because for some reason, you know, they're going to end up paying the same taxes they need to make sure that they comply with all the reporting obligations because if they don't, even if they pay all the taxes due, they could be subject to penalties and interest. Sure. So in the U.S., not only U.S. taxpayers not only have the obligation to pay income tax or, you know, a state of gift tax, but they also have duties to report. And again, even if there is no tax due or even if you pay all the taxes, if you don't comply with the reporting requirements, then you may be subject to, to substantial penalties. Sure. You got to remain compliant, right? So, okay. I don't know the answer to this question. Do Let's use Columbia as an example. How similar or how different are the estate tax laws in a place like Columbia compared to the United States? Completely different. <laughs> I okay. mean, that's the straight answer. They're totally different. And one of the mistakes that I see, you know, a lot of taxpayers do 
is, as I said, they moved to the U.S. without planning in advance, number one. And number two, they arrive here and they just assume that the system works the same way it works in, in our countries, you know, in Latin America or in Europe or whatever they come from. And they're just completely different. Gotcha. Right. I'm not a tax attorney. And actually, I'm not an attorney in Colombia. But just to give you an example, in Colombia, the person or the subject that's um, subject to the estate tax, sorry, to the gift tax is the person that receives the gift. In the U.S., the gift tax is imposed on the person that makes the gift. That's right. So that's just to give you an example that they're completely different. Okay. It's kind of backwards there. Okay. Yeah. From the way we do it here. Okay. But there are still, but there still are gift tax thresholds and there are state tax thresholds where above those certain thresholds, you're going to be taxed. To be honest with you, I'm not aware of any threshold in Colombia, I think, but don't quote me on this because again, I'm not an, I'm not an attorney in Colombia, but you know, based on my experience, I don't think there's a threshold. I think every single inheritance is subject to like a 10% state tax and 10% gift tax in Colombia, as opposed to the U.S. where you do have, you know, an exemption currently is like over $12 million per person. And then any wealth that's transferred upon death, you know, in excess of that amount is subject to a tax between 18 and 40%, depending on the amount of the state. Sure, sure. So client comes in, they're moving here from Colombia, they want to be a U.S. citizen, they want to pay U.S. taxes, they're doing the planning with you, and they're going to be subject to obviously estate taxes. They've got money or assets above those thresholds. What are some of the planning conversations that you get into with some of the clients? I'm not trying to give away your secret sauce, so I just want you to say <laughs> high level, but you know, what are the type of conversations that you have with a customer uh, or with a, with a client in those scenarios? Well, one of the things some clients can do, and something I want to mention here is that there's not a one size fits all in tax planning, right? It's, it's not because some people, for example, may, you know, depending again on the age, right? Of the taxpayer, the domicile of their children or grandchildren, the family and what's going on in the family, right? Are they going to disinherit somebody? Do they have a second or third spouse? Like you have to look at all those factors. But one of the techniques that they may implement is they may transfer some of their wealth prior to becoming a U.S. person to, you know, their kids or grandkids. But again, it's very important to make sure that these clients also have a local advisor with them, right? Because I may give them, you know, options that will work from the U.S. perspective, sure. but will be harmful from the foreign jurisdiction perspective. So we have to get together with a local advisor and make sure that we find a solution that works for both jurisdictions, right? Or at least has the least impact for them. Sure. Everything has a, every strategy and as many of them as there might be have a pro and a con. There's some Correct. stuff that works in your favor and there's some negative consequences to it. You just have to look at it and go, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it more good than bad? Right? Exactly. Exactly. And for example, and this goes to my point that there's not a one size fits all, right? Because you can't advise somebody who's 40 years old to give away their wealth you know, as opposed to somebody that's 98 years old, sure. right? Because 
Somebody younger might not want to lose control of their assets or the enjoyment of the assets. Somebody that's older, that may be sick, you know, there's other considerations. They may be more willing to uh, transfer those assets to younger generations before they acquire, you know, U.S. domicile. Well, absolutely. And families are all different, right? You can't just say, hey, transfer your assets to your kids. They might not have kids. They might not like their kids. Their kids could be alcoholics or drug addicts or partiers or something. And that would be the worst thing that you could do is transfer those assets to those kids. So, you know, some people have charitable intent. Is that is is charitable intent part? is, Is that something that you take into account when you're doing your planning? Of course, you know, so long as the client decides to do it, yes, there's people that do have that intent, there's people that don't. And but you kind of like first sit down and get to know the client, you know, their objectives, the family, you know, what's going on. Uh, And then we make suggestions based on what, you know, deems to be best for the clients. Sure. Absolutely understand. It's funny when you talk about charitable planning with clients um, and you explain the benefits, potentially the tax benefits associated with charitable intent. um, It's funny if you help educate somebody, you can take somebody with no charitable intent and create charitable intent because of the benefits associated with it. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, it depends. You really find, you know, everything and everyone is so different, right? I've had clients that I've said, look, we need to plan, you know, this way or that way, because for example, people who are not domiciliaries in the U.S. and they own like real estate here. That's one of the biggest situations that I find It's foreigners come to the U.S. and they buy real estate on their personal name or through a Florida LLC, which is the same, right? For tax purposes as buying it on their own name. Yep. And then they come to me and they're like, oh, you know, I invested in this $3 million property uh, through an LLC because that's what the realtor told me. And I'm like, well, okay, let me explain this to you. You own a U.S. asset for estate, for U.S. estate tax purposes. So if you die with this asset on your name or you being the sole member of this LLC that in turn owns the real estate, uh, the first $60,000 of market value are going to be exempt from estate tax, but the rest is going to be subject to that 18 to 40% estate tax. That means that your estate tax liability could be about $800,000, $900,000. It depends, you know, it depends whether they have a loan or they don't, but just to give you an example. And, you know, so if you plan, it might cost you, you know, a few thousands of dollars, but you're going to minimize or, you know, avoid that state tax exposure. And sometimes I've had clients that say, well, my kids should be happy. I'm leaving them anything. So they will have to deal with the tax. You know, I don't want to deal with it. It's like, okay, but, you know, you're leaving these assets, like try to do it right. And some people don't, they don't do it. Just, I don't know if it's because... I don't know. They they're afraid of it. Maybe they don't know enough or they honestly feel that, you know, their kids should be grateful. They're getting anything at all. So, you know, look, I don't know about you, but I nobody ever left me anything. Right. And so I think there's a lot of people out there that have done decently well for themselves, maybe. And nobody left them anything. And they're like, hey, if you're lucky enough for me to leave you something and it comes with a tax bill or some complexity, sort it out. <laughs> totally. Totally. So Totally. <laughs> Not the worst case scenario in the world, right? And yeah. But to your point, to the other side of that are the investors that have 
um, that have businesses, that have real estate, that they want to remain, though they want those assets to remain in their family and part of their legacy, and they don't want to have to have those assets sold or disassembled or whatever to ultimately pay a tax bill later. So that creates another level of complexity um, for that type of planning. Right, um, right. And again, you know, there's different solutions for every case, uh, you know, depending on the age of the person and whether they are insurable or not, we sometimes suggest that they just get life insurance. So in case they pass away, their family has the liquidity to pay the tax or you're not avoiding the tax, but you are creating the liquidity. And it all, again, it all depends on, on the person and sure. their own situation. Sure. So let's lean into that a little bit because I'm not sure everybody's familiar with how that's used in that scenario. And so um, what we're talking about is we own assets, we own a business, we own real estate and say, let's assume that our business or our real estate's worth $10 million. Let's just pick a number, right? If we die from an estate tax perspective and that's included in counts against us, part of the value of that is going to have to be paid to the federal government in the form of taxes, Right. Well, again, it depends on the domicile of the person, right? So if the if the person is domicile in the US, then they do have an exemption, which currently is 12.07 or less. That's so right. if you own assets worth $10 million and you are a US person, then you know there's no estate tax due because you can have up to 12 point whatever free of estate tax. That's right. right? And it, and now that's there right. are there are some reporting obligations, even if there is no tax due Sure. in that scenario. Now, if you are a non-domiciliary of the United States, right, then and you own the same $10 million of real estate in your personal name, let's say, then the first $60,000 are going to be exempt from U.S. estate tax. And then the $9,940,000 are going to be subject to U.S. estate tax in a rate that ranges from 18 to 40. Why only 60000 is exempt? Because that's the exemption amount for non-domiciliaries. Interesting. That's a really low amount, my grandson. It's very low, very yeah. low. And do you have any idea how many foreigners are investing in real estate in South Florida now? I mean, I don't know. Like you, you mentioned that, you, yeah, you mentioned that you live in in Tampa and Orlando, and I, I'm sure Orlando is a very hot market too. But Miami is insane right now. Yeah, and it's not only Latin Americans; it's you know Europeans are trying to buy real estate here. Even uh, people from the U.S. that move here from one other states. Yeah. So you know, just any apartment nowadays in Miami is a million dollars. That's not too high anymore. And then you have all these foreigners that come here. Again, they don't find the proper advice. They just go by what the realtors say, right? And I have nothing against realtors here, just to make sure. But sometimes they do advice in subjects that, you know, they shouldn't be. And people just come create these LLCs, you know, through zombies. And they go out and buy properties. And then they have a, a big problem. Sure. Okay. So let's go back to that example. $10 million of real estate. 
They have $60,000 exempt. They're basically going to have to pay taxes on about $9.9 million worth of real estate, right? So in that scenario, if they know there's going to be a tax bill that becomes inevitable that they're going to have to pay, they either have to be willing to sell the asset to pay the tax bill. They have to have some other cash or other assets that could be converted to cash to ultimately pay the tax bill. Or what we started on that conversation was they buy a life insurance policy, potentially for the amount of taxes that they would project that they owe that are due. And that's just considered part of the expense of carrying the real estate, because now you've got a life insurance policy that the death benefits would show up if and when that person passes away. So they would have the liquidity to pay the tax bill and be able to keep the real estate. Those are some of the options. Yeah. Another option is maybe you know, maybe transfer the property to like an irrevocable trust, you know, that is not subject to where in which the assets are not subject to U.S. estate tax. But again, it depends how it just depends. Yeah. And I'm not trying to give <laughs> yeah, away but, all the secrets. And we're no, not no, trying no, to it's not about it. that. It's just, you know, it's this is a general conversation. So, yeah, they may transfer it to like an irrevocable trust. Mm-hmm. Some people try to transfer those assets to foreign corporations, right? Which is commonly done, but it's not really allowed by the code. In other words, it is allowed, but there are some rules that are called the inversion rules pursuant to which if you transfer all of the assets or substantially all of the assets, you know, to a foreign corporation of of a domestic corporation to a foreign corporation, then that foreign corporation will be treated as a domestic corporation. And therefore, at the end, even if they own shares of a foreign corporation under certain circumstances, they may be treated as if that was a U.S. corp. And therefore, the value of those shares will be also includable in the state. That's a little bit more complicated to explain. But basically, there once they already own the asset on their name, there are few options, but they're not as many options as they will have if they plan before they invest here. So it would have been different had they have purchased the asset in the foreign corporation's name instead of purchasing it differently and then transferring it to the foreign corporation. Exactly. Exactly. Ah, exactly. That's good. That's good to know. That's a good Exactly. Word. So because of the type of customers that you work with and your clients, how often are you having those Uh, potential citizenship conversations around some of the reinvestment programs like EB-5 at all? Is that anything that you're ever uh, involved with? So, no, we do not practice immigration law. I do work, you know, with some immigration attorneys, but most of my clients already come with immigration attorneys, but I do provide support for the immigration attorneys. You know, sometimes they need like business plans or they need financial data they need, you know, the clients to make a capital contribution. So I do assist on that portion of the transaction. But no, we don't uh, give um, immigration advice. Understood. I just, I feel like those are related a little bit, you know. They like, are. But yeah, so that's good that we drew a line in there and it's show it's not they necessarily are. the same thing. Yeah. So every time legislatively, like, so for example, recently we had um, the passage or they're, they're working on passing the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA thing. So every time we hear one of these, you know, uh, legal uh, bills that are trying to pass, how often is there something in there 
that affects the way that you can ultimately plan for clients so that it changes some of the strategies or some of the opportunities? A lot of times. So for example, last year, there was a bill that it actually didn't pass, but you know there was a bill to reduce the exemption amount, the $12 million amount, which was increased by uh, President Trump. And, you know, if that exemption amount is reduced to, let's say, $3 million, $1 million, $5 million, like nobody knows, right, what's going to happen yet. But we do think that it's going to be substantially reduced. And if it is, then all of the taxpayers or all of our clients that have assets worth more than the exemption amount have to, like, sit down and revisit their tax planning. That's right. right? Because... The assets that are now sheltered from estate tax under that exemption amount are going to probably be subject to to estate tax if they lower that amount. So, so yeah, very often. Because you could have a married couple today with about $24 million worth of stuff and not have estate tax concerns. But Correct. Because that 12.07, it's per person. It's per person, right? So that's for a husband and a wife. So you get to add that together for a married couple. Correct. Right? Okay. Correct. So, so you've got a married couple with almost $24 million worth of assets. And if they come in legislatively and change that to like $5 million per person or a total of $10 million, those people now went from no tax on their $24 million to having $14 million of that exposed to taxes. That's a big difference. Right. It is, of course, of course, and you know, if and if the um the state amount is more or less fourteen million dollars, then it will probably be subject to the forty percent estate tax rate, which is pretty high. Which is pretty high. Yeah. yeah. Nobody, <laughs> nobody likes giving away forty percent of their stuff, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Understood. Do you have clients that are constantly, because I'm sure there are some clients that are educated enough to understand that those estate tax limits are discussed almost every time there's a bill being passed, you know, are they nervous? Are they scared about those things? Does it concern them? Yes. Yes. Some of the clients are very, uh, very well educated on taxes and, you know, they keep track of it. But again, because most of our clients are foreigners, they usually are not, right? And they usually do not understand. They come here and they're like, why do I have to pay these? You know, in my country, I didn't have to pay that. And and that's part of what I love about my job. And it's kind of like teaching people, right? How it works and how to navigate the system because they come here, they move to the US and people just have no idea how anything works, right? Not even to obtain a notary stamp. They have no idea how it works. So part of what I like the most about my job is like to sit down and to be able to explain to them how it works and you, you know, to educate them a little bit. So some of them, you know, keep track of the laws to go back to your question, but some of them like are totally lost. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, that's why I'm hiring you. So you can take care of it. You keep track of it. Exactly. Exactly. Or they want to cherry pick. They're like, can we just, that law is better back home. Can we use that rule as opposed to. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I do have clients, you know, I have a recent client that he was making a distribution uh, is from France and he was making a distribution to France. And I said, look, let me look at the treaty because usually dividends paid to foreign corporations from U.S. corporations to foreign corporations are subject to a 30% withholding. He's like, 
no, what do you mean 30% withholding? This is a repatriation of assets free of tax under, France, under French law. And I was like, that's great. That's how it works under French law, not under US law. Let me teach you how it works. So yes, they do think that either they think that everything works, you know, the way they're used to it, or they just try to cherry pick completely. Sure. So you brought up tax treaties. Are there some countries that we have much more favorable tax treaties with and then other countries where there's much less favorable tax treaties to work with? Uh, yeah, every single tax treaty is different. But, you know, I will say the main difference is not only between terms of different tax treaties, even though they are all different. I think the biggest difference comes when there are tax treaties versus jurisdictions that do not have tax treaties, right? So for example, in Latin America, only Mexico and Venezuela have U.S. income tax treaty with the U.S. Okay. Not, you know, all, all the other countries do not. So, so yeah, when you do tax planning or, you know, a tax analysis for somebody that comes from Argentina or Peru or Colombia or Venezuela versus somebody from Mexico, the impact is completely different. So, okay, this is an area I certainly don't know enough about. So why don't we have tax treaties with those other countries? It's not like their citizens aren't also trying to come here. Like why, what causes a tax treaty to happen between some countries and not happen between other countries? I, I I think that's a very complicated question. Uh, I assume there are different interests, you know, with different countries. I mean, and for example, there's a tax treaty with Chile that I may be wrong on the number of years, but I I think it had it has been like you know they're they're been having conversations about implementing this treaty for like over twenty years. So I think there's a lot of bureaucracy. And I imagine that. I imagine the answer is bureaucracy and different interests with different countries. You mean politicians getting in the way of things, slowing it down a little bit? Is that what you're talking about? Maybe. Understood. So what are the what are some of the most common misconceptions that when somebody comes to see you, what do customers <laughs> tend to think or believe that tends to be wrong when they come to visit you? As I said before, a lot of things, they do think that, you know, the things in the U.S. work same as in their countries. Uh, one of the scenarios that, that I find very often are U.S. citizens that were born here when their parents were going to school or when their parents were on vacations, you know, and, you know, right after that, they moved to their country they've been there for you know 45 years they've been they've gone to school there they work there they have never you know been in the U.S. besides when they were born or they went to Disney World five days you know in 2000 and they realized that they are subject to taxes in the U.S. even if they have not lived a single day in the U.S. even if they have not earned a single dollar from U.S. source even if they have no connections with the U.S. whatsoever, besides having that passport. And clients, you know, they just freak out. And, you know, the, their question is, okay, I get it. You know, I was born in the U.S., you know, 53 years ago, but I never went back to the U.S. Why am I obligated to file income tax returns in the U.S. and pay taxes there for the income and assets that I own in my own country? 
and then you're gonna sit down and be like that's how it works you know and, and some because you are a u.s person you are subject to this worldwide tax system and then the next question is okay i'm gonna give up my passport and my answer is well we have to analyze that because if you you know expatriate then there's going to be like an exit tax and you know as a, to give you just a general idea the way it works is as if the taxpayer has sold all of their assets worldwide the day before giving up their passport then they have to pay the gain on that all of those assets so it's expensive Wow, that's complicated. So yes. somebody that's never been here, really, that has citizenship for those reasons that you outlined, could owe tons of income tax that they've never paid to the United States. And when they realize that and say, I want to just walk away from this whole U.S. deal, there could be another tax that could potentially be worse than the income tax. Correct. Exactly. Oh, that doesn't sound like a fun conversation to have to have. Uh, no, it does not. And it surprised a lot of people, you know, because uh, honestly, like I, I do have clients that, you know, or I've had conversations with people that they're like, look, I, you know, I, yeah, I was born there when my parents were going to med school and I never went back to the U.S. Like, what is this? And yeah, that's how it works. So another one of the things that we do or the services that we offer is we assist taxpayer and becoming compliant when they're not compliant, right? There are some programs that the IRS offers and allows taxpayers to like voluntarily come to the to the um, IRS and disclose their assets and their income and, you know, certain things that need to be disclosed. And usually by paying either, you know, some part of the tax due or interest or penalties, depending on the situation and, you know, the amount of income, assets unreported, then they can become compliant with their tax obligation. Oh, I'm I'm sure that's a that's kind of a weight off their shoulders that there's a program or a workout, you know, knowing that because I imagine there's a lot of people that way more than we realize that fall into that little that little bucket of potential clients. So that's that's great that there's a a workout program for that instead of just this big gotcha. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as a general rule, they can only participate in those programs before the IRS actually finds out about them. In other words, they cannot be under a civil or criminal investigation by the IRS to be able to participate in those programs. Gotcha. So it's voluntary. Like you're like, well, as soon as you find out, you have to self-report, hey, I made a mistake. I just found out it was a mistake. I'm ready exactly. to come clean. Show me mercy. Exactly. Exactly. If you wait for the IRS to come and knock on your door, then you are in a whole different situation. It's too late. Yes, it's too, too late. late. Same as those taxpayers that come to the U.S., right? As I said at the beginning, and six months later, like, okay, I've been living here for six months. It's like, it's too late now. Right. Yeah. Well, we, planning with anything and, and you know, being because well, we all learn. It's unfortunate sometimes that there are some really harsh penalties for not knowing how to make the right decision. So, you know, at that point, I think the rules are, you know, yes, this is complex and maybe everybody doesn't know it. But as long as you were showing good faith and you tried to follow the rules, they're like, OK, they were trying. They weren't trying to bend them or break them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So exactly. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, hey, um, Pilar, this has been a great conversation and we're kind of running a little bit short on our time today. Any final thoughts, you know, uh, something that I should have asked, something I didn't ask? What does the audience need to know about international tax law other than my big takeaway is if you realize you're caught in a tough spot with international tax law, go tell somebody about it sooner than later and beg for mercy, right? Yeah, and I think my, my last comment will be you don't know what you don't know until you find out what you don't know. So, you know, if you are not, or even if you are from the U.S. and you're thinking of like, you know, moving to the U.S., if you're thinking about, you know, investing in the U.S., uh, opening a business here, just go and, you know, and, and get somebody to help you walk through that. Understood. Don't just like try to like do it on your own without knowing what you're doing. Just go and get illegal and proper advice before you do that. Well, now that begs the question, how many people come to you after attempting to be their own attorney and do some of their own legal and tax work? Oh, my God. So many. Really? So many. So many. And I don't know if this happens in Tampa and Orlando, like in the area or not. But here in Miami, everybody seems to know about immigration, taxes, real estate. So they always come and it's like, no, but you know, the friend of my cousin, they told me that I needed to do this and that. And it's like, oh God, like, why do you go ask, you know, somebody that works in, I don't know, it's a TV producer about taxes, just like go to the right professional. You know, if you need to find out about real estate, then go talk to a real estate expert. If you need to know about taxes, talk to a tax expert, you know, don't just listen advice you know from anyone and everywhere and, and people who don't really have the right information yeah well that will never change there are always <laughs> people out there that when they get a hold of a little bit of free information that sounds a little better than what they think that they know <laughs> right they're like hey and i'm like but what did you pay for that nothing right so how yeah, much no, i google how much value can you expect that to have in the grand scheme of things, right? Zero. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just under- go get the, the proper advice. Go find how to hire the right person and ask the right questions, you know? So right. many times, I mean, look, and I'll let you speak to this. How many times have people come in for purely maybe just a consultation at the beginning of a conversation and you realize like we're able to help a bunch of their fears and their anxiety in the consultation? You're like, hey, it's not nearly as bad as you think and da, da, da. Like, and they didn't know that. And now you're able to give them that peace of mind, right? Yes, yes, totally. Yes. So yeah, hire the right person, get the good advice and then make an informed decision, right? Exactly. Exactly. If not, you know, it's going to be more expensive at the end. You're going to end up paying more if you don't get the proper advice. Absolutely. It always costs more to clean up the mess, right? Totally. Totally. (laughs) Understood. Understood. Well, Pilar, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, Today we had international tax attorney Pilar Rubio on us from Rubio International Tax Law. Um, Thanks for everybody for listening and tuning in with us today. Uh, We appreciate it. This was Matt Chancy and the Tax Alpha Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 